Hey there, and welcome to the United Church Podcast. We are a new church here in Seattle committed to an ethic of love. We are striving to be a people united, united with Jesus, each other, ourselves, and the world around us. We hope you enjoyed this week's homily. Let's take a moment and uh, pray real quick, and then we'll jump into our message for the day. God, thank you so much for this beautiful weather and this beautiful day in which we as your people, uh, we that are seeking, we that are searching, we that are in process, Father, can gather together on this morning to journey together, to process together what it is that you're doing in our hearts and in our lives as we continue to seek this thing that we call life and this thing that you are as we try and de- desire, as we desire a, a deeper and more full understanding of you as God. So Father, we lift this time up to you and we ask that your spirit would be present to open our hearts and our minds and our ears, that our souls may receive the goodness and the love that flows from you continually. Father, that we may come to know you more and more in this space. So Father, it's in your son's name that we pray all of these things. Amen. So we're continuing in our series. This is week two of the You Asked For It series. And today, the question that was posed is, can I know or experience God if I'm not quite sure that he exists? Can I know or experience God if I'm not quite sure that he exists? I think this is a really good question and a timely question that that hits every single person in this room, that there is something that each and every one of us can benefit from this question, especially as we live in a city that is quite literally 30 to 40 percent atheist or agnostic, that, that are questioning and have those sorts of things that simmer beneath the surface as to whether or not this God is really there or frankly just don't believe that this God is there. When I was a kid, My grandpa used to tell us stories of his life as a child, as he grew up in the city of Chicago. He talked about his mother, my great-grandmother, and the the fact that they grew together as she was a single mom in the city of Chicago during the Great Depression. And as they would walk through the streets trying to figure out what it was that they were going to eat that night, they would always just say a prayer. God, would you please provide something for us to eat tonight? And Grandpa would say it was almost as if it was immediate, that as we were walking down the street, there on the sidewalk would be a nickel. Now, this is the Great Depression, so a nickel could actually buy you a meal. Today, we'd look at the nickel and be like, oh, cool and just keep walking, right, like a nickel, yay. We might pick it up if it was shiny enough, right? But they would pick it up and that would be enough for them to go buy day-old bread and sometimes, perhaps, they would find a little bit more and they would be able to buy a slice of bologna. And then they would make fried bologna sandwiches and that would be their dinner. That that's what it looked like for them in this life of the Great Depression in Chicago in the 20s. Well or 30s. So this was great-grandma's life as she continued to talk over and over about how God continually provided for them in beautiful ways, in amazing ways that God would just literally flood in with provision day in and day out throughout the Depression for the single mom and my grandpa. My grandpa also talked about how that's really how he learned how to fish 
My grandpa was an amazing fisherman. I mean, amazing fisherman. When, right, right before he passed last year, we, I, I had the opportunity to hang out with him for a little bit and talk about some of the stories that had floated around in the family. And I talked to him about his fishing experience. I was like, Grandpa, you're a really good fisherman. I mean, like, like ridiculously good. And I said, I said, Grandpa, there's like this story of you entering into a fishing contest probably about 20 years ago. He goes, oh, yeah, 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 I remember the fishing story. I said, so the story is that you won this fishing competition. And in the course of the afternoon, like you caught 220 fish. And the second place guy caught three. That sounds like a fish story, Grandpa. He goes, my grandpa was an accountant. He goes, he goes, it was 227. And yeah, three. <laughs> he was like, I'm really accurate with this stuff. But he said, like, this was, like, God had gifted him with that ability so that throughout his life he would be able to provide for him and grandma. Like, he was just able to catch these fish so that then they could learn how to prepare them and then they would eat. And God just provided in this space and in this way. And I, fascinating. I was like, oh, this is nuts. This is crazy. But for some people, like my grandma, or my great-grandma and my grandpa, faith just came really easy. It was like breathing. It was like second nature. That believing that God would provide, believing that God was there and present and near, was always an easy proposition for them. My grandpa Abel didn't have it the same way. My grandpa Abel struggled with faith throughout the entirety of his life. He struggled with stories in scripture about like Jonah and the great big fish that would like swallow this man whole and he lived inside of this fish for three days. My grandpa Abel was also a really good fisherman and also learned how to fish so that he could provide for his family throughout the Great Depression and later. This was a fish story to him. Like, that this is what is in Scripture, that, that, that there's this big fish that can swallow a man, and I just can't believe that that actually happened, that that's a real sort of thing. Like, the, the, the doubts and the questions and the, like, I'm not really sure that a God exists kind of thing, that all of these sorts of things really wrestled and weighed down in on him. Not to mention when you got to the story of Jesus' resurrection. Grandpa was like, malarkey. <laughs> that's an old man's word. Grandpa was old when I died, when he died. That's kind of how it was for him, that faith was like this great grand pursuit of nothing, that you could look through everything and see nothing on the other side, that there was nothing out there, nothing beyond, and that's just how he lived. He thought that scripture was nothing more than just Aesop's fables. Right? Good moral stories that, that kind of help you along the way in different ways, but it has nothing to do with a God that is out there beneath the pale moonlight. Someone's thinking of us and loving us tonight. American tale. Five goes west. I think he sang it in that too. But these are the stories of faith that kind of wrestle and push down on us that, 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 for, for Grandpa. And I, I got to believe that like, that's been my story, too. Faith has been a really hard struggle, a really hard journey for me. I, I remember waking up one night in the middle of, of high school and like after, after a dream and then waking up and being like, 
I'm not really sure this God exists. It was after a dream. I have no idea what the dream was. I just remember waking up, sitting up in the middle of the night saying, I'm not sure I think this God exists. In fact, I'm not even sure that we exist. I think we're nothing but a dream. We're a dream in the eye of something else. I was like, what is wrong with me? I was 14. This is terrible. But these were the kinds of questions that continued to press down on me for years upon years upon years. And even today, I still wrestle. I still struggle and push through the hard-fought places of faith. Does this God exist? Is he really here? And if he is, what kind of God is this? Does he love us? Does he not love us? Is he just some grand watchmaker that set things in motion? He flicked a switch and then stepped back and walked away? Is he really truly present? And who is this Jesus and does he really exist? Did he really exist? Or is he also just some sort of fable that is kind of like the questions continue to go on and on and build more and more and more and more as they press and push down deep and heavy on my heart, on my mind, and on my soul. And some of us, that's our story. If, if you're here this morning and you don't believe in God, or if you wrestle with the reality that God exists, is he truly here? Is he truly present? I'm glad you're here. If faith is something that has just been super easy for you, that it's just something that has, has just come like air. It's like drinking water, and it's a really simple thing. I'm glad you're here, too. If you don't know why you're here, <laughs> if you're like, I have no idea, I just have walked in. I'm glad you're here, too. I am glad that we are here in this process, in this space, in this journey together. We believe, as a church, that everyone is in process, that we get to be a part of your process, that this community together gets to be a part of your process in journeying together to figure out and understand if there's a God, and who is this God, and what is this God, and maybe there is no God, but this thing right here is really cool, and I want to be a part of a community that is doing some amazing and cool things. I want to rub shoulders with people like that. I'm glad you're here. I'm glad you're here in this process together with us. I, I'm, I'm thankful that you've trusted us with your process, that you've, you've what was it, the 76ers, trust the process, Joel Embiid? Yeah. <laughs> Andy gets it. Andy gets it. Philly represent. <laughs> but I'm, I'm thankful that you have trusted us with your process, even if it's just for today. Like, I'm thankful that you are here in the midst of this space. And it's quite the honor. Because you see, as a church, as a community, we believe in you. We believe in your story. We believe in your process. We believe in you. And you are not alone in this. Every single one of us is journeying together, processing together this space of faith. Whether faith is hard or easy or uncertain or even absent, let me say it one more time. I'm glad you're here. See, I think in the church, what has happened is faith and doubt have become polar opposites. That they have become two totally separate things that we have pushed into two totally different spheres of reality. That you are either someone that has faith or you are someone that has doubt, not understanding or realizing that faith and doubt are actually 
two sides of the same coin, that they actually exist together, that they work together, pushing and pulling and pushing and pulling for us to grow and experience life together, to understand what this human experience is. In Luke chapter 7, we find this really amazing story this quite interesting and fascinating story of a man whom we would consider to have a great amount of faith, a, a man who certainly believed in who this Jesus was, that gave his life for that, that followed Jesus and did all these things, but then also said, are you really that guy? Because I'm not so sure. In Luke chapter 7, we stumble across this story of John the Baptist. Now, John is in prison. He had been uh, arrested and thrown into prison by King Herod because John spoke truth to power. John spoke truth to King Herod and said, Ah, the things that you're doing, that ain't right. And Herod said, I'll show you what's right. You're going to jail. And later on, after this story, John was actually beheaded for speaking truth to power. He gave his life in service of speaking truth to power. But here in the midst of John's story, he is sitting in prison, and all of these miracles had been happening. Jesus had, had, had healed the centurion's son just a little bit before this, and then he raised a widow's son from the dead. Like these two really amazing miracles, and then this story appears where John sends two of his disciples, two of his followers, to Jesus. He sent them to him to ask, are you the one who is to come, or should we expect someone else? Jesus, I, I know that we're cousins. They were literally cousins. They were related by blood. I know that we grew up together, and I know that I've known you for my whole life. And I know what I have seen out of you, that, that you have done these really amazing and remarkable miracles that, that not only have I seen, but I've heard about, that other people have talked about over and over and over again, that these miracles are really present. And, and I believe that you were supposed to be the Messiah, but all of a sudden now, I'm not so sure. Jesus, could you, like... Like, reassure me that you are who you say you are? Could you just prove it to me? Because I'm not sure anymore. I'm just not sure. So he sends his disciples to ask the question, are you who you say we are? Is John in prison for the things that, that like, for, for proclaiming you and the kingdom that is coming near and all of the things of speaking truth to power? Is, he's about to die. Is it worth it? That's what he's asking. Is it worth it? Are you who you say you are? And Jesus responds to him. Jesus says, well, well Jesus responds, he, he, by curing people, by healing people. Jesus responds to those disciples by saying, watch this. He starts to drive out demons, the, the demon-possessed, and he begins to heal many people that are all around him in this space. And then he responds, he says, Go back and report to John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is proclaimed to the poor. Blessed is anyone who does not stumble on account of of me. 
Go back to John and just show, tell him everything that you have seen. That's all you got to do. I'm not going to tell you who I am. I want you to believe or not believe. It's your choice. Jesus sends the disciples back to John the Baptist and says, it's your choice. This is what we've seen. And he's going to honor whatever decision John makes. Jesus wants to create an environment. Jesus wants to create an atmosphere where you choose yes or no. That's it. He knows that the process of faith is long, that the process of faith is hard, that it doesn't always come easy for everyone. And so he wants to continue to create an environment where he says, this is who I am. It's your choice, what you will believe as a result. I have a lot of friends that have come to these points in their life where they have seen multiple things begin to emerge and take place in the church, outside of the church, and they've, they've come to a point where they have just said, no. I don't think I can believe in God. I don't, or maybe I can, but I certainly can't believe in this Jesus. I, I've, I've done too much investigation. I've done too much searching, and there's just, I just can't do it. I just can't make that step across the threshold. I've had other friends on the other side of the coin say, I think I can. This resurrection thing makes absolutely no sense to me. That someone can die and be buried and stay dead for three days and then just come back to life. Like that does not make any sort of scientific sense to me. But I'm going to take that step across it and figure out who this Jesus is through that. I'm going to walk across that threshold and begin to continue that process in a different light and in a different way. Jesus creates this environment for John, and he asks us to create this environment for each other. That we can process together the space of faith, of coming to a distinct decision point in our lives where we say, yeah, I think God is that. Or no, I don't think he exists in any way, shape, or form. What's amazing is that Jesus honors that decision no matter what. Because right after this, right after he sends John's disciples back to him to report on all these things, Jesus says this. He begins to speak to the crowd about John. He, he begins to talk about all of the things that John had done. He begins to honor him in public because he loves him. He cares about him. And he wants everyone to love and care about him no matter the decision that he will make. C.S. Lewis has oftentimes been really helpful for me as, a, as someone who struggles and, and searches for faith and, and, and sees it grow in, in different ways and in deepening ways as I, I, I process and figure out who this God is on a daily basis. Back in the day, I read The Abolition of Man by C.S. Lewis, and this is, what, this is what he says on this journey of faith. He said, the kind of explanation which explains things away may give us something, though at a heavy cost. 
but you cannot go on explaining away forever. You will find that you have explained explanation itself away. You cannot go on seeing through things forever. You cannot go on seeing through things forever. I'm a deconstructionist. I'm somebody that wants to figure everything out and pick it apart and pull it apart until I get to the absolute core. And then when I get to that core, I want to pick it apart too. And the problem with doing that is when you continue to pick something apart, you're left with absolutely nothing. You continue the process over and over and over and over and over again until there's absolutely nothing left. When I read this quote, I was like, oh, that's me. That's me. I'm picking apart everything. I'm deconstructing it over and over and over and over again, and I'm left with nothing. I'm not even left with dust or sand. I'm left with absolutely nothing. It has been fitted away to such an extent that there is nothing left. Lewis continues. He says, if you see through everything, then everything is transparent. When you've deconstructed everything, there's nothing left. But a wholly transparent world is an invisible world. To see through all things is the same as to not see. When you deconstruct everything to such an extent that there is nothing left, you are left with nothing. You are left with an absolutely transparent world. This is how we get to meaninglessness. This is what happened in the wake of the Enlightenment, is people began to deconstruct things over and over and over and over, and it led to nihilism, this belief that, that the world is meaningless, that everything is meaningless, and that there is nothing left for us here except to shrivel up and die. That life itself is just this meaningless foray into nothingness. That's where I had started to find myself on this journey. I had picked everything apart, and I had kept going. But what Lewis is arguing here, as a man who did not believe that God actually existed at one point in his life, and found himself in this space, what we have to do is we have to pick apart to see if there's something there. But we have to know what it is that we're trying to look for. We have to have a goal in mind, something in front of us that we're trying to pick apart to get to. And if you never get to that thing, then take it out, remove it, and put something else there. But don't pick apart reality to the point that nothing is left. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 12, he says, For now we see through a glass darkly. But then face to face, now I know in part, but then shall I know, even as also I am known. For now we see through a glass darkly. What Paul is saying is kind of the same thing as what Lewis is saying. In fact, Lewis would say, this is what I'm talking about when I say this, is that we're looking through a glass darkly, that there is something that is actually kind of marring up our glass, and we can't quite see through what's on the other side, but that there actually is something on the other side. And what we need to do is begin to rub away 
just ever so slightly. Begin that process of rubbing ever so slightly to see through so that we can see what's on the other side. Not to see through to then just break through the glass and then rub off everything that's there. Have you ever played like a little scratcher or you get one of those little things in the mail that's like, hey, scratch this off and you'll win $50 or whatever? What happens when you scratch too hard? Or you get the back of an iTunes gift card, right? And you just start scratching really hard. What happens when you scratch too hard? You lose the code. <laughs> it's gone. That $15 gift card that grandma got you and you're like, woo, is worthless. There's nothing left because we scratched too hard through the surface. We have to begin to see through this glass dimly. We have to see that there is something on the other side, and that's what we're trying to get to. That's what we're trying to move towards. I would argue that on the other side of the glass, what we need to do as we deconstruct the things that are around us is to put Jesus there, to say, is this Jesus who he says he is? That is the line of process, the line of investigation that I want to go through. I want to put this Jesus there, and then I'm going to begin to dig and figure it out. But I'm not going to go through Jesus. I'm not going to pick Jesus apart 100%. I'm going to pick away everything that's around it until I get to the core and see if this is who he says that he is. Blaise Pascal was a, uh, he was alive in the 1600s. And he was a, a French mathematician and philosopher, and he, he came up with this thing called Pascal's Wager. That's what we named it, Pascal's Wager. As he questioned the existence of God in not only his own life, but in the life of friends around us, he said, you know what? This is my grand wager. I can either believe that this God exists, or I can believe that this God doesn't exist. Those are my two choices in this line of thinking. He exists, he doesn't exist. If, however, God doesn't exist and all of the things that they say about this God and this Jesus are true, I lose. I lose. Because then everything that they have said, I am, I am, I am condemned to a life eternal in hell or in, this, in purgatory or whatever you want to call that afterlife space. I am condemned to that because I have chosen not to believe. He said, however... If I choose to believe that this God exists, but at the end of my life he doesn't exist, did I lose? Because on the other side, there's just nothing. If God doesn't exist, there's nothing left. Nothing at all. So if I choose to believe God is there, then what have I lost? I'm dead and gone and I don't remember anything because I have just fittered away into nothingness. Consciousness is gone. There's nothing there. Did I really lose? That's Pascal's wager. And so for him, he said, you know what? I struggle with this faith. I wrestle with this idea of what is going on here. I am going to choose to believe that God exists in the hope that, you know, he does. But if he doesn't, I didn't really lose anything at all. That was Pascal's wager. It's kind of a, a funny sort of idea. Abraham Joshua Heschel says kind of the same thing. He says, remember that there is meaning beyond absurdity. Know that every deed counts, that every word is power. Above all, 
remember that you must build your life as if it were a work of art. Heschel said this in an NBC interview about 10 days before he passed away. Remember that you must build your life as if it were a work of art. We're going to journey through this life of faith, of question and of doubt. We're going to process through all of these things. And if God doesn't truly exist, I still want my life to look like a work of art. And the people that I'm surrounding myself with, the, the work and the journey of faith that I am going through, that I am dealing with, I think is actually going to create and build this beautiful work of art of a life. Whereas if I don't, well, I'm not sure it will, right? Like this was Heschel's grand wager with Pascal. See, ultimately, I think Jesus is near. Jesus is near us. He is always by our side. He is here and he is present. And when we begin to look through that glass dimly, when we begin to rub it away just a little bit, not too hard, but just a little bit, we begin to see this Jesus emerge. My friend Elliot, not my daughter Elliot, my friend Elliot, struggled with faith. A, a pretty big and heavy struggle with faith. As to whether or not he believed that God existed, that, that Jesus was who he said he was. One of the things that he said to me once he decided to make that, that, that step across the line of faith, he had been a part of our church for a while. And he said, you know, I still really wrestle with this thing. I still really wrestle with this idea of faith. But I cannot deny that I see God, that I see Jesus at work in this community, that the things that you guys say, the things that you guys believe, the things that you guys are doing as a church, I can't deny that I see Jesus in that. That is what is helping me to step across that line of faith. It is this community around us, this people that are in process and journeying, that have ebbs and flows of, of, of belief and doubt over and over as they go up and down, as they figure it out, as they push and as they pull, and as they prod and as they poke, and as they comfort and as they console. I can't deny that I see this God, this Jesus at work in this community. That's why I choose to believe. See, I think Jesus is always near us. No matter what we believe, no matter where we are at, no matter what our struggle and our process is, Jesus is always right by our side, guiding us and pushing us and prodding us forward. That has been my story. That has been my reality. As I have, as I have continually struggled with doubt and faith throughout the majority of my life, I continue to find that Jesus is just near me, that he's just here. And I can't quite explain it. I wish I could, because I think that would make for a better story. I can't quite explain it, other than to say that he has always been there. He has always been wrapping his arms around me. He has always been showing me love. In fact, just the other day, I was spending some time in prayer um, I have a hard time with prayer. I, I struggle with it, mainly because I can't sit still. <laughs> I, can't, like, I, was I was taught as a kid that when you pray, 
You have to sit, fold your hands, and bow your head. And this is what prayer looks like. It's because I was taught to pray as a kindergartner who had a lot of energy. <laughs> and the teacher was like, Aaron, you need to sit down and put your feet on the floor and fold your hands and lower your head and pray. I understand that now. I understand trying to get a kindergartner <laughs> to sit still. Those are the things you would do. However, today I really struggle with that because I just can't sit still. I'm on a phone call like with people that, that, that I need to talk to for things and if it's gonna be longer than a five minute phone call, I have to stand up and begin to walk around. Like I just cannot sit still. There's this beautiful thing called a prayer labyrinth, and St. Mark's Episcopal over in Capitol Hill has built a brand new one. And the other day, I was walking through the prayer labyrinth. It's just a, it's kind of a maze kind of thing. And maybe someday we can talk about how you walk through a prayer labyrinth. It's really quite fascinating and fun. But it's kind of like a maze, and you just kind of lose track of your thoughts and where you're at with things. And you're, you're not really having to make any decisions other than to just simply word vomit at God, right? On the way out of the labyrinth, making my way through the, the maze, on the way out, all I heard or all I experienced or all I felt was God saying, take me with you. Take me with you. Jesus is always present. He just wants us to begin to see, to look through not all the way through everything to where we get to nothingness, but he just wants us to see, to look through and see that he's there, to see that he's present. Take me with you. Tyler Knott Gregerson uh, wrote this amazing poem in his book, Chasers of Light. I'm there, still, waiting still, there beneath the water's surface, there above the mountain's peak. I'm there, still, hoping, still. There in the colors that bleed through the leaves, there in the blue that comes back before black does. I'm there, still, come back to me. I feel as if these are, in many ways, the words of Jesus. I'm there. I'm present, still, just waiting. Waiting for you to see through and know that I am here. And I know that you struggle and I know that you wrestle and I know that it's a process. But it's okay because I'm here. I'm here. I'm still waiting. And I'm present. Father, this morning, as we wrestle with these questions of faith and these questions of doubt and these questions of existence and knowing that some of us, this is not a struggle at all, which is a beautiful thing. And for others of us, this is a, a lifelong pursuit. Father, this morning, may we know that you are here. May you help us to begin to see that you are present. May we begin to feel and experience the newness of your love and of your grace and of your mercy. Father, help us to see anew. It's in your son's name that we pray all of these things. Amen. Thank you for listening to this week's homily. 
If you're in Seattle, we'd love for you to join us on Sundays at noon at 1316 3rd Avenue West in Queen Anne. If you'd like to support our efforts, please visit unitedchurch.gives to partner with us financially. Be in peace and God bless.